Uh, today, uh, we are going to continue our series on the book of Psalms. We're looking at the Psalms this summer. Um, if you weren't here last week, we kind of introduced the series, and what we said, just quick recap, is that the book of Psalms, uh, which is right in the middle of your Bible, the book of Psalms, is actually a book of songs. It was the nation of Israel's song book. It was the way that they together worshipped God. So we read it in the context of the whole Bible, and it looks like to us kind of like poetry. To them, these were actual songs. Now, what we said last week, we don't have the sheet music. We can't actually sing the songs the way they would have. They won't sound the way they would have. But these are songs that the nation of Israel actually sang together. Like any good songbook, well, not any good songbook, but like a, a really good songbook, this songbook consists of a whole lot of different types of music. There's more than just one genre of music, if you want to put it that way, in the book of Psalms. Uh, so what we want to do this summer, because there are 150 psalms, 150 songs, we can't cover them all this summer, uh, unless we did like 10 psalms per week, and that would be pretty exhausting, I think. So what we're going to try to do instead is look at some of the different types of psalms and touch on them over a couple weeks each, and uh, just to give all of us kind of an idea of exactly kind of the scope of the book of Psalms. We can't hit every single one in a sermon. You could possibly read them all, and we're working on, and hopefully uh, within the next couple, either next week or the next week, we're working on a reading plan that we'd like to share with you, that you could go through and read all of the Psalms over the course of this summer. Um, so we'll be sharing that with you really, really soon. But we want to touch on, like I said in the sermon, several different types, several different genres. This week and next week, I'm going to look at a specific type of psalm, uh, and that's a, an appeal to justice. So if you would, uh, we're going to start, or we're going to look today at Psalm 82, at a psalm that is an appeal to justice, and see what that means as we look at it. Psalm 82, if you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you, and it's on page 492 in the hardback Bibles. Let's look at Psalm 82 together. Let's read it, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Psalm 82, starting in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The word of the Lord. All right. Um, so any time that we, as human beings communicate with God, anytime we call out to God, anytime we appeal to God in any way, we refer to that as prayer. It's a privilege that those of us who are believers have the ability, the right, the access to be able to speak to the holy God who is the creator of all the universe. 
Sometimes you'll even hear people kind of sarcastically talk about prayer in this sense of like, why would, if God is over the entire earth, why would he take the time to listen to you when you talk to him about your petty concerns, these petty little things that we pray about? And, and to be honest, many of, many of the things that we pray about, we can be guilty of telling ourselves these are unimportant things. These are probably things that would be unimportant to God. However, what we see in Scripture and what we read um, because of Jesus and because of his sacrifice, he provides for us the opportunity, the ability, and even the right to communicate with that holy and all-knowing and all-powerful God. Prayer, then, when we as humans call out to speak to, talk to God, Prayer, at its very core, is actually by us an admission. It's an admission from us that there are things outside of our control. When we pray, we are saying, God, there is something that I cannot handle. We don't go to God just to tell him how we've got everything under control. When we pray, especially when we pray any kind of request, any kind of appeal, when we go to God and ask for anything, what we're saying is, God, on my own, I can't do this. At the same time, while we're saying, I can't do this, we are also, when we pray, stating our belief and our trust that the one we're praying to can fix those things. We pray, we call out to God, we ask God, because not just because we believe we can't do it, but because we believe that he can. We go to God because we're saying, God, you have the ability, you have the power, you have the strength to do this thing, whatever it is that we're praying about. Sometimes in our lives, we bump up against really big stuff. Really big stuff, stuff that feels like it is totally and completely outside of our control. There are some issues in our lives where we struggle with this feeling of, should I pray about this? Should I not pray about this? Should I give this over to God or should I just take care of this on my own? There are things that we feel like, and and maybe we're being prideful and feeling this, but just to be honest, there are things that we feel like we can handle. There are some things that we just know. They're so big, so overwhelming, that that seem to extend outside of us. Because what I'm talking about right now and what we see in this psalm are ideas that are so just overwhelming that there's no way that any one person could get a grip on, could handle could have any control over those things. That feeling of looking around and seeing brokenness and seeing problems and seeing, to use the word that the psalmist would use, injustice around us can feel so overwhelming. It can feel defeating. It can feel deflating. If you're a person who likes to get things done, If you're a person who likes to fix problems, I'm kind of a fixer. 
If you come to me, and I almost apologize about this, because if you come to me and you're like, I'm really struggling with this, my impulse is going to be to tell you what to do to fix it. Okay, I know some people are really good at listening, and I didn't mean that as a joke. That came, that came out. I, I listen, but I'm listening for a solution, right? I'm listening so I can tell you what you need to do to make things better. Because that's my impulse. I want to fix stuff. There are some things, though, that when we're confronted with them, we just look at it and say, there's nothing I can do to fix that. Let me give you, like, let me, let me give you some statistics that, uh, just, just to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about, okay? <clears throat> According to the United Nations, tonight, 811 million people in the world will go to bed without having had the necessary amount of food for the day. That's almost 10% of the world population that doesn't have access to enough food to survive. How about this? The United States State Department estimates that 24.9 million people worldwide at any time in the world are being trafficked. 24.9 million victims of human trafficking every single day. The World Health Organization estimates that 73 million, 73 million abortions take place worldwide every year. And the CDC states that in the United States alone, every year, over 10 million adults, just adults, this doesn't include children, are victims of domestic violence. We could go on and on and on. Millions upon millions upon millions of people in this world who are suffering. Those numbers, those numbers are staggering. I can't wrap my mind around a number like 811 million or 10 million or 73 million. Those numbers are just so huge. What can I, what can you, what could even this group of people in this room do in the face of that, those kinds of staggering worldwide numbers? Sometimes we talk about prayer almost like it's uh, a cop-out. We say things like, well, I guess all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray. You know, man, massive, horrible suffering. I guess we'll just, just have to pray. Like prayer is this lesser thing. Like, prayer is this thing that we do if we can't do something that will actually help. Like, I would do something really good and useful, but I can't, so I'll pray. But, if we serve a God, if we serve a God who is actually in control of the universe, if we believe if we believe that the God that we follow, the God who's described in Scripture, the God who speaks in Psalm 82, if we believe 
that that God is real and in control and listens to us when we pray, then praying is a whole lot more than just settling. In fact, if we believe all that's true about God, then prayer would be the most important and most powerful thing we could do. Here's the bottom line of Psalm 82. We live in a broken and unjust world. But we serve a Savior King who cares about justice. I'm going to say this again and then I'm going to show it to you here in this psalm. Justice is important to God. It is incredibly important to God. We see this in this psalm. Now, I have to admit, as we look into Psalm 82 together, there's, there's some confusing stuff in here, okay? This is not necessarily an easy psalm to look at. There are a couple of parts of this that are like crystal clear and, and super, and we could just focus on that. There are a couple of parts in here that are kind of like, huh, what? What exactly is going on here? In fact, it starts with something like that. Verse 1, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. The divine council? There's a divine council? Is that like the city council, but kind of on a broader scale? Like, what is the divine council? What is this talking about? God has taken his place. And in the midst of the gods, plural, he holds judgment. Who are these gods that the psalmist is talking about? He mentions them again in verse 6. I said, you are gods. It's a lowercase g in both parts. But what exactly is this? This whole psalm, all of Psalm 82 is a description of God talking to and about these lowercase g gods. So who are they? And what exactly is going on here? First thing we have to remember, okay, we said this at the start, we'll probably say this a lot this summer, the Psalms are poetry, it's not a narrative, okay? This is not a description of an actual literal event okay psalm 82 is not describing a literal thing that took place or has taken place at some point in history however in saying that please hear this okay this is important it's not literal but it is true and what i mean by that is what it is describing poetically is the truth about god and about the world we live in Whoever, whatever it is describing here, through its poetry, through its metaphors, is true. It's a part of God's revelation to us through Scripture. But we can't look at it as a literal description of a real true story that happened at some point. So, who are the gods? But the question isn't necessarily who are the gods, but who do they represent poetically? Does that make sense? A little slight difference. Most biblical scholars... Uh, think there are three possible interpretations of the word gods here. Who is God? God, big G God. Who is he talking to? Little G gods. Um, the three options that most of them uh, kind of cycle through, one potential is that they're corrupt human leaders. The word God, um, the original Hebrew, which is Elo, I have it written down and I just lost the page, uh, Elohim, 
um, can be used to talk about a human ruler. So it's possible it's talking about corrupt human leaders. Other scholars believe that it's talking about false gods who are worshipped by other nations. So this is Israel's songbook, their songs to the one true God, Yahweh. But maybe the little g gods here are the false gods that were worshipped by the other nations that they were in conflict with. And then other scholars believe that the reference here is to other real, true, spiritual beings uh, who were evil, what we would probably refer to as demons. That What this is talking about is God, in the most kind of literal reading of this, God talking to uh, demons, Satan, in a way, confronting them. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time because all three of those basically point in the same direction, to be honest, for us. If we believe that Scripture does teach that there are evil forces, that there are supernatural beings who are bent on evil, not on good. We believe Scripture teaches that. If that's true, then there will be men who are bent on evil. They could be influenced by those evil beings, and those evil beings will create evil systems in the world represented by false gods. So all of those kind of all point in the same direction, which is to say this. What this psalm is describing is the personification of God's response to evil oppression in the world. Personification is when we take an abstract idea, a big idea, one of those big, too big for us to fully understand, and put it into kind of human terms to tell a story. That's what we're doing in Psalm 82. It's personifying God's response to evil oppression in the form of a conversation. God's response to those who would use power for their own evil purposes. Verse 2, how long will you, these little g-gods, judge unjustly and show partiality to the, and here's the specific word he uses, wicked. In other words, whoever these rulers are, these little g-gods, they have power. And God's saying, and you're using it unjustly justly. You're using it to help the wicked instead of to help, as we'll see in later verses, the weak and those in need. This is God's response to wickedness and evil and injustice in our world. Whatever that might look like, whether that's a husband who uses physical violence against his own wife or children, whether it's a court system that shows preference to those with financial means, or whether it's an entire culture that turns a blind eye to children with no home or no food. It's, It's injustice. And this is God's response to those who are in positions to judge, positions of influence, and are using that influence wickedly. And what is the message he has for them? His message is stop. Stop it. Actually, it's more, maybe more accurate to say his message is repent. Turn to something else. Look at verses 3 and 4. Give justice 
to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is God's way of saying, the word repent, we use the word repent sometimes in church. It's a very churchy word. It literally just means turn. Literally, it means change your mind. But our understanding is change your mind in a way that changes what you believe in a way that bleeds out into what you're doing. Repent, change, stop. You're using all of your power and your influence for yourself and for those who are wicked. Turn around, start using it for those in need. Notice how God defines justice in these verses. Because justice, and I'll be honest, in preparing this sermon, this was heavy on my mind, justice has become a bit of a loaded term in America today. I think that's a shame. It's clearly a biblical principle. I mean, it's about as explicit as it, is, as it can get here in Psalm 82, but it's throughout the scripture. God cares about justice. What does he mean by that term? Well, we see this, his definition of justice here is to help those who are in need, those who are vulnerable, those who are the most often exploited. Justice here is not retribution or vengeance. Not that, in saying that, I'm not saying that God doesn't bring vengeance, but I am saying here he's not asking us to participate in vengeance and retribution. In fact, he'll say later in the scriptures, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we talk about justice, we're not talking about finding ways to punish the bad people. When God talks about justice, what he's talking about, and the way he's using it here, is about restoring things to the way they are meant to be. God created this world, and when God created the world, Scripture teaches us that God created this world in what we use the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, which means more than peace. It means peace, but it means more than peace. It means everything working together, everything the way it's supposed to be, and that's how God created the world. And then we broke it. We took everything that was right, and we came in as humans and said, God, we don't trust this shalom that you've created. We're going to create a better situation. We're going to create a better world than this perfect world you've created. And now we can look around and see what the results of that were. We broke the shalom that God created. All the foundations, the psalmist says it this way at the end of verse 5, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The world is not the way it was meant to be. The foundation of God's creation that peace, that shalom, has been shaken by our, by human beings' attempts to live our lives apart from the God who created it in the way it's supposed to be. All the foundations, the way God intended creation to be, have been shaken. So justice, justice means simply this. Setting things the way they were originally intended. The broken world we live in gives preference to those who are in positions of power. Because we look at, we, all of us, look at people who have more. 
more whatever, more power, more influence, more fame, more popularity, whatever it may be, they have what we believe we want. They have what's good. They have our twisted view of shalom. They have what makes life happy and worth living. And we see that and we're like, I want to be more like them. I want to be them. How can I get in power like them? And we will do whatever we can. And our world works on the premise of doing what we can to get into those positions to benefit ourselves. And we end up viewing the world as this zero-sum game. I want what will be best for me. And if that means you can't have it, that's too bad because I need it. And we believe that others must lose so that we can win. And the little g-gods, the people of influence, the people in power in our world, the systems that our world creates in order to perpetuate that power, look at life as a competition. And the only way I can win is if somebody else loses. And God's call here God's call here is to walk away from that game. To stop viewing the world through the lens of how can I achieve for myself regardless of what it means for anybody else. God's call here to the little g-gods in verses 3 and 4 is to look at others. To see others in their need and in their suffering. And to deliver them, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver those in need from the wicked. Not exploit them, not ignore them, because it serves you. But the sad truth, and we see it in the way it's phrased, God's judgment here in verse 5, is that these little g-gods, these These evil forces in our world do not heed his call to repentance. Look at verse 5. They have, and in this verse, when he's saying they, he's referring to the little g-gods. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. They, They just don't get it. As much as we can say this world is broken and the way we're doing things, it's not working. God says, but but we just don't see it. We just don't see it. We go on in our blindness thinking, yeah, but this is how I'm going to achieve peace. This is how I'm going to achieve happiness. By focusing on myself and my happiness, I will achieve the shalom I'm looking for. But the idea of shalom is not just the idea of individual peace. When God created the world perfect, he created it in harmony. All of it working together. But in our darkness, we don't see it that way. And so God says to the little g-gods, verse 6. He tells them how this is all going to end. You are gods. 
Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Okay, I got to explain a little bit here, six and seven. There's a lot of wordplay going on here. Okay, I referenced this a little bit earlier. The little g gods, at the beginning where it says, I said you are gods, is the Hebrew word Elohim. And then when he says you are sons of the Most High, the word Most High is a translation of another Hebrew word, Elion. Elohim is the same word that's used in verses 1 and 8 to refer to God with a capital G. If we were reading this in the original Hebrew, we would see the same word used for God and gods, with the only difference being that one is plural and one is singular. What God is saying then in this uh, hypothetical or, or metaphorical conversation with these other gods is you believe yourselves to be like me. You are gods. You are Elohim. I'm Elohim. You're Elohim's, plural. Okay? You are sons of the Most High. So gods... As in, and like I said, it can have a range of meanings where it means rulers, it could be used to refer to humans, but it means someone of importance. And he says, you, you want to use that word, okay, you are people of importance, but you have to understand you are sons, in other words, under, in deference to, the Most High, Elion, being a reference to the true God being superior to, being more than, being better than. God's saying, you, you like to think of yourselves because of your position, because of your authority. You like to think of yourselves as powerful, but you're subordinate. You are not the highest. You're high, but you're not the highest. You're not immortal. Nevertheless, like men, like men, you shall die. Like men, because you're human. As much as we use references to talk about famous people as like icons or idols or heroes or legends, all human beings share one characteristic in common we are mortal. And so no matter how much fame or prestige or influence someone accrues at any point during their life, all of us will eventually die. And what God's saying here is you think of yourselves as so awesome, so amazing, so incredible. You need a perspective check here. Like men, you shall die. All of you. It's very easy for us to look at the corruption in our world and to feel powerless. To see those numbers, to look at the suffering, and it just seems so overwhelming. But what God is saying here is a reminder to us that He, the true God, the one God, is more powerful than any human, any human ruler, any human system, God is above it all.
He is more powerful than any of it. And there's a beautiful promise. A beautiful promise of hope in verses 7 and 8. It's a beautiful promise to those who follow the true God, who long to see that shalom restored, that justice brought to the earth. For those of us who believe that there is one true God, the creator of the universe, and that all the other leaders and all the other systems and all the other false gods that are in the world are inferior to him and are actually wicked, there's a beautiful promise here. The unjust will fall. Not just the people, not just the leaders, the entire system. Because it says in verse 8, verse 7 says, you shall die and fall like any prince. In verse 8 it says, arise God, just judge the earth for you, God, capital G God, one true God, shall inherit all the nations. The promise here, our hope here, is that there will be a day when God, the God, the true just God, will inherit the nations. When he will reign over all of the earth. A fully restored earth. An earth that he has set back to the way it was originally intended to be a just earth. An earth in shalom. There is a promise that that day will come. This is the promise and this is the hope that we have as believers. How do we respond when the injustice in the world around us is so overwhelming? We pray. We pray to the God, the God who will judge all the earth and one day will make it, will make it all right again. We call out to him, arise. We cry out to God, come, set things right, judge the earth, put things the way they were meant to be. And we call out in hope. We call out in belief. We call out in trust that he will set it all right. Because we know that he already has arisen. He rose from the dead. The the true son of the Most High, the true son of the true God, died, just like he says all these sons of the Most High will die. But unlike the princes being referenced in this psalm, He died, but he did not stay dead. Because he, the true son of God, Jesus, because he was all-powerful, but he did not use his power to exploit the weak. He willingly gave up his power for us. He saw us, those of us, all of us, who even though no matter how powerful we believe ourselves to be, no matter how amazing and awesome and influential we might believe we are, we are weak. We are needy. 
we are afflicted and destitute. Because of our sin, no matter how hard we try to fix even ourselves, we can't do it. We are in need. We are weak. And yet Jesus saw us in our weakness. And even though he was all-powerful, he did not take from us. He gave to us. He gave his own life for us. To rescue us to rescue the weak and the needy from ourselves, from the justice that is due to us because of our wickedness, Jesus became weak for us. He took on flesh and allowed himself to bear the punishment, the justice, the vengeance we deserve so that he could rise again in victory over death to rescue us from our sin. Does God care about justice? God cares so much about justice that he sent Jesus to be justice for us. I want to be really clear, okay, as we look at this psalm. God is not saying that we, any of us, need to do justice, to work to restore the brokenness around us in order to earn his favor. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus earned God's favor for us. That's absolutely foundational. And when we look at the overwhelming, overwhelming injustice and brokenness in the world around us, we recognize and we call out and we cry out with the psalmist for God to come and set right what is broken. But when we say that only God can set right all that is broken in our world, we're not saying that therefore all of us should just shrug our shoulders and shove our hands in our pockets and say, well, this is the broken world we live in. Not much we can do about it. This psalm is a call. This psalm is an invitation for all of us to care about what God cares about. The psalmist makes it very, very, very clear here. And this is true throughout Scripture, but this psalm is so clear about this. God cares about justice. God cares about what happens to those who are weak and needy, both spiritually and physically. God cares. God cares. One day God will reign over all the earth. It tells us here, you shall inherit all the nations. One day, he will physically restore this broken world. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're told in scriptures that God already does reign in our hearts. So the question we have to ask is this, are our hearts being shaped by God's reign? Do we care about what God cares about? 
There are big things that we cannot fix. We know that. But how can our lives reflect God's care and concern for justice? Now next week, I said we're going to spend a couple weeks on some psalms to talk about justice. Next week, I'm going to talk really specifically about one way that we as a church uh, have felt called to work for justice. So I want to invite you to come back next week. I know next week's a holiday weekend. It's not always easy, but if you can, please be here or at the very least watch online um, because we want to share some things with you as a church. This week, though, I, I just want to ask this question. Do we care about what God cares about? What breaks our hearts? What moves our emotions? Are we more concerned with our own personal, financial, relational, moral, physical safety, well-being, comfort? Or are we moved? Do we care about the weak and the fatherless, the afflicted and the destitute? the needy. God cares about them. Do we care? I'm going to pray, put some questions on the screen for some time of reflection, and then we're going to share communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we look at this world around us, we see injustice, brokenness, we look in our own hearts and we see brokenness and injustice. We come to you because we know we on our own are incapable of fixing any of it. We need you. So we call out to you. Forgive our brokenness. Transform our wickedness. Please arise and judge this world, this broken and wicked world. Set it back to the way you intended it to be. We believe that that's what you are doing. We believe that that's why you sent Jesus. We believe that one day all of this will be restored. And so we cry out, come soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Set right what is wrong. Come soon. It's in your name we pray.